Preface. To the family. The Utah Reds, the family of Lemuel Hardison Red, look to the southern part of the United States for their progenitors. This volume is the culmination of a lifetime search for the history of the Red family. It is divided into three books and several appendices. The first book deals with Lemuel Hardison Red and his wives, Keziah Jane Butler, Sariah Louisa Chamberlain, and Mary Mariah Polly Holt. Book two presents the family histories of John Hardison Red and Elizabeth Hancock, parents of Lemuel Hardison Red. The third book covers the family histories of John Lowe Butler and Caroline Ferrazine Skeen, parents of Keziah Jane Butler Red. Appendices include various items of interest regarding the Red family, with the primary appendix containing a fully researched family tree. With regard to sources for the information contained herein, I have indicated the records and documents from which information was obtained by underlining them in the text rather than resort to footnoting. The search for the Red family has led me through many parts of the country and has introduced me to numberless new friends and relatives. I have been collecting this material for over 50 years, but not with the plan of putting it into a book. This wasn't my idea, it was Jay's. He came and suggested that I write it. Then he persuaded me and I consented. Jay had been a real support to me in this tremendous endeavor. He has advised, encouraged, and helped me in numberless ways, and I want him to know that I appreciate all that he has done. Too, I want to express my thanks and appreciation to Mason for the hours that he has spent in taking, printing, and arranging all the pictures for me and to G. Donald Gale for putting in good order the great mass of material I had collected in past years. The longer I have worked on it, the more enthusiastic I became, and the more determined to make it acceptable to you. I have prayed to my Father in Heaven to help me make it so. It has been fascinating and rewarding to me, and I hope you will find a lot of enjoyment in it yourselves. If there are mistakes in it, and I'm sure there are, please forgive me. I would like to say, as Sir Walter Scott said in his Lay of the Last Minstrel, I cannot tell how the truth may be. I say the tale as twas said to me. Two Cardinal Newman said, A man would do nothing if he waited until he could do it so well that no one would find fault with what he had done. Some even find fault with the Lord's work. So many of you members of the family who are living yet, and also those who have passed on before, have helped much with your contributions of stories, incidents, pictures, vital statistics, and other data and I wish to herein express my sincere and heartfelt gratitude to all of you. There are many Reds in Virginia, and they have been there for a long time. A David Red was brought over in 1637 by William Spencer, and a John Red was brought to Lancaster County by Toby Smith in 1654. Rufus D. Red came with Governor Sir Alexander Spotswood, who came in the Deptford, and arrived in Virginia June 20, 1710. William and John Red were transported by John Woodson in 1715. The men who brought such individuals to Virginia were given grants of land for so doing. Any man owning a boat who brought people over was given 50 acres for each adult and 40 acres for each minor child. Virginia land grants. After the Civil War in England, which ended in 1649 when Charles I was beheaded, his fighters suddenly became refugees, were sought after, and they got out of the country as fast as they could. Virginia, with so few settlers and surrounded by hostile Indians, had need of manpower and agreed to allow the refugees to settle there with no questions asked. If one could pay his own way, he was given a grant to 50 acres of land in Virginia. If he couldn't pay his own way, but could find a sponsor, the man who brought him over or who paid his way was given a grant of 50 acres. The unpaying passenger signed a bond to work for his benefactor for four years and was called a bond servant. 
When the four years of satisfactory servitude were ended, the bondservant was freed from his bond by the court and was himself given a grant of fifty acres. It was a good opportunity to get to the new world and to become an independent landowner and future citizen of a new country. I haven't found out which of these men is my ancestor. That is the search upon which I have embarked. Back in 1932, T.P. Red of St. Louis wrote me a number of letters about Red family history. One statement of his is interesting and possibly helpful. Later in life, when I became interested in family history, I was told by an old settler in Virginia that there were five brothers of the Reds and that their names were William, Mordecai, James, Samuel, and John. I have these names all through my records, but I haven't found any relationship between them as yet. If we are descended from either of these, we are related to most of the Reds in Virginia. In the service records of Washington, D.C., I found the following. I, William Red, was living near the mouth of New River in Onslow County at the time of the Revolution. I was about 23 years old when I was drafted and went in Captain Doherty's company. Lieutenant Curtis Ivey, who was adjutant, were first carried to Duplin Courthouse by the militia officers, and they're placed under the command of the Continental officers. To wit, George Doherty, Captain, and Curtis Ivey, Lieutenant and Adjutant. Doherty was an Irishman. We first marched to Four Hawks Mills within a mile of Salisbury. While encamped at this place, an express came from General Green commanding us to join him. There was a large body at Fort Hawks Mills, and we marched immediately according to orders, and I was stopped to guard the magazine. I remained one of the guards until after the Battle of Utah Springs, when some of the officers came from headquarters, and with them I went to Hillsboro to get a discharge. I went with Captain Doherty and Curtis Ivey to Hillsboro. I obtained my certificate of discharge, and it was spelled read instead of read, and I was afterward obliged to get a certificate from Curtis Ivey to prove my identity. I then went to Hillsborough and got a compliment of $32 more and 16 cents. I was on the expedition 12 months, it being the time for which I was drafted. My discharge I left at Warrington with Jenkin Averett. I know nothing of it since. One hog bought my certificate and paid me in gold. I did not go out of this state. William Red. William Red, Private and Doherty's company, for 12 months received $40 per annum to commence 4th of March, 1831. Certificate of pension issued 16th October, 1833. William Red applied for a pension 5th of February, 1833. Claim was allowed. He lived in Onslow, was 69 years old, born in Virginia. No family, data on file. State of North Carolina, Secretary of State's Office. I. William Hill, Secretary of State in and for the state aforesaid, to certify that appears for the muster rolls of the Continental Line of this state in the Revolutionary War, that William Red, a private in Captain Doherty's company of the 10th Regiment, enlisted in 1781, and that his time was out 25th of May, 1782. His term of enlistment was no doubt for 12 months, given under my hand this 8th of October, 1833. W. Hill. These documents were found in the application of William Red for a Revolutionary War pension. A law passed about 1811 granted a pension to all who were destitute. None of the Reds qualified. Later, a law which went into effect March 4, 1831, granted a pension to all who participated in the war. William Red, still alive, applied. Whitaker Red, his brother, had died in 1828. They told me at the archives that because a man's name was not on the service list, was no sign that he didn't serve in some capacity. Many who did serve did not get credit for it. However, 
I have a certificate from the archives at Raleigh, North Carolina, that Whitaker Red did serve. This is the first and only clue that we have of where the Red family lived before they settled in Onslow County, North Carolina. This William Red was an older brother of Whitaker Red Jr. He was an uncle to John Hardison Red, my great-grandfather. I turned to Nainsman County, Virginia, to see what I could find there. Nainsman means fishing point. The Geological Society of Utah listed nothing from Nainsman County. It was in the line of General Sheridan on his march to the sea during the Civil War, and the courthouse and all the records were destroyed. Later, I went to a national convention of business and professional women in Minneapolis. They had built a large historical and genealogical building next to the state capitol since the time I worked there on my first mission, when I had done some research in the genealogical library inside the state capitol building. They had built a large historical and genealogical building next to the state capitol since the time I worked there on my first mission, when I had done some research in the genealogical library inside the state capitol building. There I found a printed copy of a parish record called a vestry book. It remains the only record of Namesman County that goes back to the Revolutionary War and before. A vestry book of the upper parish, Namesman Co., Virginia. A vestry is a group or board of lay members of the church appointed to look after the temporal or civic welfare of the church and its members. When I came home, I found a microfilm copy of the original listed under Upper. Who would ever think of looking there? I had heard of Upper Floors and Upper Teeth, but never of an Upper Parish. From it, I took the following. At a vestry held in Suffolk Town, September 17, 1759, for Upper Parish, Namesman County, ordered that John Ballard and Joseph Skinner procession all the lands and bounds number 23 according to law. It was an early colonial statutory law of Virginia that all land should be processioned every four years. That is, the landmarks had to be renewed every four years by blazing the trees along the border, chopping a bit of bark off each tree. Processioners were appointed to go with the inhabitants and renew these landmarks. Upper Parish was divided into 28 districts, and William Red lived in district number 23. In obedience to an order of vestry bearing date September 17, 1759, we have processioned all the lands in our bounds. Between William Red and Jas March, both parties pressed. A line between Abram Carnell and William Red pressed William Red and Whitaker Red. This is the first time and the only time I have ever seen Whitaker Red's name in the index of any printed book. A line between John Spite and Mansfield Tarning pressed William Red and Jess March, signed by John Ballard and Joss Skinner. Four years pass and it becomes time to procession the land once again. Now William Red is important enough to be a processioner, a public officer. 25th October, 1763, ordered that John Ballard and William Red procession all the lands and bounds, number 23 according to law. In obedience to an order of vestry bearing date 25th, October 1763, we, the subscribers, have processioned all the lands within our district. A line between Henry Gwynne and John Ease processioned William Red, John Ease, and Danny Gwynne. A line between Thoswilly and John Norfleet pressed John Norfleet and William Red. A line between William Turlington and Thos Healy processioned William Turlington and William Red. A line between William Red and Daniel March pressed William Red, Whitaker Red, by the consent of March. A line between Whitaker Red and Abram Carnell, processioned Whitaker Red and John Ballard. A line between William Red and William Turlington, processioned both parties, signed by John Ballard and William Red. Notice in the above that William Red as processioner adds the second D to his name to set the record straight. 
1759, there was a line about Abram Carnell and William Red. In 1763, the line was between Abram Carnell and Whitaker Red. Other lines remained the same. It seems that a part of William Red's original plot of land became the property of Whitaker Red. Did William Red give Whitaker Red a piece of land to build his first home on and start his family? If so, William Red could be Whitaker Red's father. Whitaker named his first son William. In that day, it was customary and something compulsory for a man to name his first son after his father, or if he were socially more important, after his wife's father. Whitaker's junior named his first son William, and his brother William named two sons William. Was William the father of Whitaker? I think so. I will call William the first generation. The next time we find this Whitaker Red is in Onslow County, North Carolina. In the Onslow County Court Minutes, which are in the archives in Raleigh, North Carolina, of April 13, 1789, William Red, evidently the oldest son, was granted letters of administration on the estate of his father, Whitaker Red, on a bond of 500 pounds. General Fonville and Asahatch enter as his securities, and on April 27, 1789, an inventory cell was held for the estate of Whitaker Red, deceased. At this cell, William Red brought hackle, a comb for dressing flax or raw silk, a toe, a pivot to support it, stone pot, two axes, two hatchets, one gun and coolies, one lot of books, 17 fowls, two putter basins, tray and sifter, one canoe, a hogshead of fish. A hogshead is a large cask, especially one contained from 100 to 140 gallons, one barrel and one fish. They must have been experienced fishermen. Two combs, one trunk, plate, and sasser. Whitaker bought one chest and two jugs. Gabriel Hardison bought one cast, some corn, two iron pots, spit of forks, one pan and pot. Jesse Hardison bought one flax break, a machine for bruising the wood part of flax so as to separate it from the fiber. As far as I can determine, Whitaker Red had two sons, William and Whitaker. However, grandfather Lemuel Hardison Red was baptized for two other sons, Henry Red and Alexander Red. They must have died before their father did, or else they remained in Virginia. He also had a daughter, Nancy, I'm told, who married John Pearson. There is no mention of the last three at the same time of Whitaker Red's death. Such clues to the family history have been most helpful to the piecing together of this volume, and wherever possible I have tried to track down every lead from which information provided. But my efforts to chronicle the Red family began even earlier. In January of 1918, I went to North Carolina to hunt genealogy at the request of Cousin Herbert Red, who collected the fare from the San Juan Reds. I had just been released from the Northern States Mission and went from Chicago to Washington, D.C., planning at the suggestion of President Ellsworth to go by boat, as I may never again have the opportunity of such a boat trip. Chesapeake Bay was frozen over. I waited a couple of days but decided to go by train. The train did not go directly, Tonslow. I had to go to Williamton, New Hanover County, and take a little sideline back up to Onslow. I arrived in Williamton about noon, on a Sunday, and had three hours to wait for my next ride. I checked my bag and went out to look at the town. I went into a drugstore and asked for the city director. I found six or eight reds listed. Some were starred to indicate that they were colored. I copied the addresses of the whites and started out to find them. It was a long way to the first address on my list, and when I passed the house, the family was all out on the porch enjoying the Sunday afternoon, all black, and they told me that he was one of Sigley Red's former slaves. Then I went to the next address on my list, Mrs. Blanche Red. Her father, George Barr, answered the door just as it began to rain. He 
He invited me in, saying that Blanche was away but would be back in 20 minutes. He told me about Blanche's husband, John Christopher Red. He loved horses, Mr. Barr said, and could talk the hinges off a gate. Blanche didn't know anything about the Reds, but she said that her husband's mother, Keziah Lindsay Grant Red, lived out in Winter Park Gardens, and she volunteered her small son Jack's assistance in helping me find the way to Keziah Red's place. She lived with her son, Charles Clayton Red. Clayton's two little daughters saw us coming and reported that Aunt Blanche and Jack were coming. I knocked at the door and Clayton answered. He was startled to see that I was not Blanche, but in response to my question, he explained that his mother was ill and her daughter, Lucy Kate, was with her. He ushered me into the bedroom and gave me a chair. I sat there and asked them numberless questions about the family. They told me a lot about them that I had included in this account. They mentioned Emily Red and Della Red. I didn't know whom they were talking about and asked them. They said Emily was an elderly lady who had been an orphan. She had learned to work as a tailoress in a shop there, but she was now retired living with the family of Melton's out in the country. They couldn't tell me exactly where. She used to correspond with Adela Red out in Utah, but they didn't remember the name of the place. I asked if it could have been New Harmony, and they recognized the name. I stayed with them until the next day. When Clayton, who was a journalist with the city newspaper, came home at noon, I have made some inquiries and found that a family of Melton's lived up in the turnpike. I said I would go knock at the door until I found them. They insisted that one of the little girls go with me so it would appear as if I were not a stranger in town, which would be safer for me. I found the Melton's, and they told me that Emily was in town. She was ill and had gone to see the doctor and be under his care. I went to the address they gave me and found her. When I told her who I was, she said, Did you stay at Clayton's last night? When I said I had indeed, she said emphatically, Then you stay with me tonight. The first thing I saw when I went into her little room was my father's picture and a little frame hanging on the wall. She also had a picture of my grandmother and one of Aunt Della. These were the only photos she had. She had some good information for me. She was Grandfather Lemuel H. Red's own cousin, being the daughter of John Harrison Red's sister, Catherine, and one of his cousin, William B. Red. Her parents were cousins, so she had information on both sides of her family, and both sides were Red's. Her father, William B. Red, had written all statistics that he knew of his parents and family and of his own family in his Bible. He had written those of Catherine's parents and family on the flyleaf of the little American history book that had belonged to Emily's brother, Jacob. They were all right, she said, except her own. He said he had put it down wrong, so Emily didn't know when was her own birthday. When I'd ask her a question, she'd answer right now and definitely, or she'd say, I don't know. I never heard my mother say, all I know is what I heard my mother say. Her mother died after she was 12 years old. Emily died only a few weeks after I got home, so it was just in the nick of time that I got there, and then quite by accident. These Reds in Willington told me much more about the family than did those in Onslow. It just proves that one can't neglect any opportunities when one is tracking down a family history. It also proves that I am indebted both to formal records and archives and genealogical societies and to individuals who are willing to share their knowledge with me in the preparation of this Red family history. In a number of instances, different members of a family of the present generation here in Utah gave different birthday, death day, and marriage day dates of a family individual, so I may have chosen the wrong date. I visited an own cousin of mine who didn't know her own birth date. She said her mother couldn't remember for sure. In my research through the years, I consulted the ward records of Spanish Fork, Utah, where my father William A. Red was born. I couldn't find the date of his blessing, which I was looking for. I found this. 
Brothers, so-so, and so blessed children today. Not much help for me. So our records are just as good as the clerks make them. Laura read.